Welcome to Free For All, an episode-by-episode podcast about one of the most endlessly fascinating television shows ever made, The Prisoner. Each week we'll be taking an in-depth look at the 17 episodes of The Prisoner. I'm Chris Bainbridge, Senior Lecturer in Broadcast and Creative Media, and I'm also a Prisoner devotee. And I'm Kai Ross, a film writer, restaurateur, and Chris's mate, which is how I got this gig. (laughs) Episode 10. Stop. Hammer time. Hammer into anvil. (laughs) Uh, Do you know, I I was so... As soon as we said we were going to do this, I thought, oh, I can't can't wait to see that one again. This is the one I've always loved. And the reason is, I mean... In all the other episodes, listen to some of the quotes that all the number two has been saying about him. Mm. Um, He's very single-minded. I sometimes think he's not human. You'll never force it out of this man. He's not like the others. He can make the act of putting on a dressing gown appear an act of defiance (laughs) and all that sort of stuff. This is a guy that is single-minded, almost superhuman. We've talked about in the past that he's almost almost like a superhuman. Mm. In these episodes, he's used these skills to either to try and get the hell out of there Mm. or to protect himself from all these the machinations of the village. Mm. In this episode, this is what happens when somebody with that skill set turns it on you, Mm. goes after you, and it's... It's wonderful. Yes. It's absolutely wonderful. This is production order 12. Yes. Written by Roger Waddis. Yeah, his his name um, leapt out mm. because in the 80s, my mum and dad used to get Punch magazine. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, Late yeah, Lamented yeah, yeah. Punch yeah, yeah. magazine. Yeah. And I used to read it. I used to sort of borrow it, A, to look at the cartoons, <laughs> McLachlan particularly, with a spell of either lemming cartoons yeah. falling off cliffs or hedgehog ones. There was a space of hedgehogs being run over. Um, which was a season of gags. And Dillis Powell used to do the, the mm. film criticism, so I used to see that. But he's, his name, uh, he's, I think he had a, a poem. He used to write a poem every month. Okay. And, and I think, uh, just a, a quick glance at his, his, uh, his oeuvre, he, I think mainly he was a poet yeah. before being a scriptwriter okay. uh, ahead of that, which would explain an awful lot of the, the literacy mm. of this episode. It's, and not only is it brilliantly well-written, yeah, um, but all the references to Don Quixote and Bizet and yes. and Goth. I'm not. I'm not going to take the mic because I actually thought it was Goth as well. <laughs> but I'd seen the name written, and I was in Italy on Lake Garda, and there's a castle there, and they have a, a bust of uh, Goethe, yeah. and I was making a bit of a joke, saying, "Oh, it's Goth. He's the original." <laughs> He's out of the sunlight. You know, it's quite quite a dark statue. He invented winkle pickers. Yeah, but I was quite rightly corrected by uh, a Frenchman mm. who happened to be there. who was at the wedding. Uh, that it was Goethe, mm. and uh, to my shame, I've <laughs> never forgotten. But they actually do pronounce Goethe in, but it's very quick in the dialogue Good. in the episode. Yes, yes, yes. But anyway, getting back to Roger Waddis. Mm. Um, <clears throat> He was originally going to be a doctor, but instead he went into to writing. He joined the Unity Theatre, which was a left-wing group in the late 1930s. And he served in North Africa and Italy, as we've just discussed Splendid. during the war. Um, he was very active during the war, writing uh, for BBC Radio. And he was also a member of the Communist Party. He wrote for the Daily Herald. And like you said, he wrote for Punch. But he also contributed to That Was The Week That Was. Yeah, on television, yeah. which I think we talk, we've talked about, and the New Statesman uh, magazine as well. And also he wrote the 1965 stage play World on Edge. Uh, so The Prisoner 
was uh, quite a rare thing for him to be writing. Ref for a into TV. Yeah. But, yeah. but th- with his kind of political and satirical writing style, fantastic idea. Oh, yeah. You know, to embed those political elements. And again, there's a lot of psychology in this episode as well. It's all about psychology, wasn't it? And I think uh, Cargill says that mm. on the magnificent um, text commentary on the Blu-ray by Rick Davey. Mm. Uh, Cargill had said, said that's the great thing about this part. You're actually seeing a man disintegrate over the course of the episode. Yeah. Um, directed by Pat Jackson. Yes, returning to the fold. Possibly the safest pair of hands. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, it's not just a safe pair of hands. He's, re- he's really good. His episodes yeah. are all really strong, aren't they? But now we know that there's, um, McGowan's seven episodes are not what we thought they were. Mm. Could this be one of the seven? I, you know, I think it possibly represents, and I think what is, is, is this is what Wattis was going for, but it, it kind of represents what McGowan's view of authority really is, nakedly, you know, there's no sort of allegory here. Mm. That sort of, the, the hideousness of authority and how much he hates it and he's going to destroy it. Yeah. It's a really sort of quite, it's, a, it's an incredibly sort of a passive-aggressive but massively aggressive. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say, it's, it's a, for an incredibly aggressive attack. Mm. He doesn't actually, what he's doing is sublimely passive-aggressive. Yeah. But uh, I think what's being said in this episode is something that McGowan would be 100% behind. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me, actually. It's a very, I think, it's, it's one of my favourites, actually. Yeah, uh, yeah. Even though it's not what we consider to be a, generally considered to be a core episode because of Wallace and because of Pat Jackson, but because of the theme mm. and how dark and brutal this episode is. It's, well, it starts brutally, doesn't it? It starts with a suicide. Well, there's a strange thing where he closes the door and then there's the sort of uh, the weird pause and it zooms into Hilary Dwyer. Mm. Uh, and so you don't really know what he's doing. He's got a sword in his cane, mm. a la John Steed. Well, his is in his umbrella, forgive me. But, but don't, don't, don't We're not going to split it. Don't send in any letters. <laughs> um, but you don't really know what he's he's doing to her, but he's, he's screaming. If you've been to Port Merion, the scream is audible from the entire length of the village to the other. He's yeah. down by the hotel when he hears it and manages to run. <laughs> yes, because he's by, he's by the stone boat, isn't he? He is, yeah. He's and he's running the wrong it. way. <laughs> <laughs> he said, yes, yeah, she runs about a mile and a half. Yeah. In, in he goes the long way around. five seconds. He comes back on the mainland, goes yeah. through the forest, back to Castec <laughs> Daydrive. But it's a, it's, a, it's a chilling scream because you don't see what's going on. It's even more sinister because it's left to your imagination. Which is, we're talking about Jaws. Of course, of course. You know, it's the old trick, isn't it? You don't see the monster. And it's... I mean, censorship, what? I mean, there, do you remember there was a punch up in, um, in Free For All they had to cut out? And then suddenly he's left with a bloodied lip and you don't know why. Right. Even the fact that the punch-up was too violent for TV. <laughs> what he's doing to poor Hilary Dwyer. Yeah, Spielberg uses that in Jaws, doesn't he? Because you don't yeah. see... I know that wasn't intentional, but, you know, not seeing the threat and leaving it to the imagination is more powerful. Yeah, yeah. And I think Luke, George Lucas did that with the Wampa, the Hoth Wampa. And then he changed his mind and... Before wrecking Changed it, it didn't he? <laughs> yeah. But I think some of the best horror or, you know, uh, supernatural films, when you knew infer... The threat. I, I much prefer that. Mm. Um, stuff like It Follows, which is a wonderful, probably the best mm. horror film in the last 10 years, I think. And you don't see a, a, yeah. a thing. You don't, yeah. Uh, but that's terrifying. more powerful. Of course, yeah, yeah. Because it, it, it forces you to come construct the threat. Mm. And you go to the deepest, darkest place of your mind when you're doing it. And I think that's clever in, in this episode where you don't see what he's about to do. 
Yeah. It's that it infers what he's going to do. And yet again, the catalyst for, uh, for Six's fury is the mistreatment of a woman. Mm. It's just absolute. It's not his Achilles heel. It's a kind of just a, he's a, I suppose it's a bit of a trope yeah. that you probably. It's a little bit like, what's it called now? The comic book equivalent, fridging. Right. Have you heard about this? Is this from Indiana Jones? No. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, when a, that's when a film franchise falls off a cliff. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. It's basically, I think in comic book terms, it's when a, uh, a female character is murdered mm. so that the male lead character can discover something about himself. Ah. Uh, you know, it, classic sort of, uh, oh, well, I'm going to get my revenge. Yeah. But ultimately, some poor woman's died. Yeah. And it's kind of, I think eventually people start going, hang on. And that's exactly what happens here, of course. But mm. um, at the same time, it is it does play to his. I mean, we've talked before about his the heraldic nature of um, the iconography, mm. and that he's he sees himself as a knight. I mean, that's basically in one sentence how a knight would see himself: yeah. a defender of gallant. Uh, oh, yes, indeed. And uh, of course, uh, that marvelous line, which I think really stuck with me the first mm. time I saw it: "You'll pay for this." No, you will. And it's just, yeah. oh, and a shiver. And you can see a flicker of fear on mm. Cargill's face when he says it and walks past him. Uh, and it, it's just, it almost it, kind of knocks it, into him, doesn't he? He does. And it's, it's um, oh, this is going to be good. Statement this of is intent. Be good. Hilary Dwyer, who um, I was madly in love with, uh, mainly because of uh, Witchfinder General. Ah. And she is, I mean, what, is there a bleaker film in the 1960s? It's just, just relentless. And, but she is the, the beating heart of that film. Mm. And, my, and she was in another one, actually, which is quite interesting, called Cry the Banshee, mm. around about the same time. That, that had Vincent Price in oh, yes. it as well. I remember Cry same the Banshee. Same sort of thing. It was almost like a, a, a kind of sequel in, in all but name, well, which, which had, uh, I think, fascinatingly, had a credit sequence, yeah. a title sequence, I should say, by uh, Terry Gilliam. Oh, wow. I think that's actually the only time he did uh, anything yeah. f- for anyone uh, apart from Python. Oh, right, a, okay. Uh, don't quote me on that. But I do remember there. Cry of the Banshee. It's, it was, I remember as a kid, Saturday night on BBC Two or BBC mm. One, they would show horror films, wouldn't yeah, they? Oh, yeah, Double Bill sometimes. Yeah, like Witchfinder, Jack the Werewolf and the, you know, all the, not the Universal films, but mostly the Hammer. It was Hammer and Amicus, wasn't it? Hammer and Amicus, yeah. 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 Hammer and Amicus. Hammer, that sounds nice. Hammer into Amicus. <laughs> <laughs> we've got Hammer into Amicus is, is, a, is a book. Mm. Just, well, we've got the title. Yeah. <laughs> if you're listening, publishers. But yes, and she was, um, no, she was absolutely wonderful. She became a producer. Became, mm. um, she married, uh, well, obviously, Mr. Heath, because oh. she became Hilary Heath and became a very successful film producer. And very sadly, I think it was one of the first... Uh, casualties of COVID. We lost her. Oh, no. Maybe not last year, the year before. But yeah, she was, a, I mean, a great 60s actress. Very Something of the Julie Christie about her. Yes. Yes, um, she does. Yeah. Just the, fa- the, the the simple fact of her beauty and her vulnerability. Yeah. Once she goes out the window, you can see why Patrick McGowan, right, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, you will pay for that. But again, it's it's this number six weakness of defending or... Weakness, you the, say? Yeah, I'd say weakness of, of a woman in distress. He yeah. can see that, you know, he heard the scream, he went running. Yeah. He didn't know who that was. It was I think it was the first time you hear a, mm. a scream like that in a village. The fact, the fact that it's, it's audible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, not, not just the, village. The, the actual ge- geography of yeah. it, but it's, it's that loud. But it's quite nice that there's, you can hear the bells in the background as well. 
mm. which is a, like a little bit of an ominous foreshadowing. Like, uh, what's the term? Is it uh, dies ire? There's four notes that accompany death. Oh, well, it's the first movement of the Requiem in Mozart. Yeah, and you hear it in hundreds of films just before a character dies. You hear those four notes very subtly. Ah. And it's almost like that. It's it's just foreshadowing like a funeral bell, church bell, before she dies, mm. which is also a nice little touch as well. And then we get the the obligatory da, 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 yeah. da, 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 fight scene. Or... Attack of the Stunt Doubles. <laughs> Frank Mayer really earned his money on this one. Yeah. He must have lost so much weight, he spent the entire episode just walking around <laughs> with a camera crew behind him yeah. on the mini on the mini Yeah. Oh, it was great. But it's it's that classic uh, 60s and 70s problem, isn't it, where it cuts from the lead actors <laughs> to their stunt doubles, which at the time you wouldn't have noticed. Well, know. it depends how big your TV was. You want those... Well, even in 1966, you're not going to have huge televisions. I know. There's so much of that in the Avengers, particularly the um, towards and, the tail end when mm. Blessing Patrick McNee was done to enjoy his uh, his uh, the spoils of his, <laughs> his success. But don't forget, I mean, like, we've talked about this several times. Nobody was really watching in colour either because this was shown on a black and white service to black and white televisions. When did it, when did it become colour then? 1969 mm. for the BBC. But it's the problem with any technology is you can basically, right, we're launching 3D holography tomorrow. Bang, <laughs> we're now recording in 3D holography. There it is, it's there. Can you watch it? No. Oh, there's no tellies available. Okay, so Currys have got some in in three weeks' time and they're 15 grand each. Yeah. And then a month later, they're 14 grand. And, you know, it it's, takes time for people to adopt that technology. Yeah. You know, Sky had an HD service, BBC had an HD service, but the uptake was really slow because nobody was buying. HDTVs, this ties in with, with the prisoner itself, the themes of the prisoner itself. Mm. Is technology adapting, technology changing? Mm. You know, there's no improvement in increasing the picture quality, increasing the, the colour quality and definition. We get to a certain point where you just won't see it anymore. I know. It's like Tommy Lee Jones said in Men in Black. This looks like I'm going to have to buy the White Elm again. <laughs> Which I have yeah, three but times. I'm so a sucker. Yeah, but that's the thing, isn't it? It came out on vinyl. It came on an eight-track cassette. It came out on cassette. Yeah. It came out on CD. Um, and then you had various the, the, formats the, the like mini disc from, or uh, the, the first the digital. Yeah, the two thousand and nine last the fiftieth yeah. anniversary one. Oh, yeah, two thousand and nine CD. You know the two thousand and nineteen, eighteen, nineteen CD. Uh, the CD from a couple of years ago, and now released, remixed. Back to where we started <laughs> on vinyl. I know that. I think that's something that McGowan would would basically enjoy talking about. And also, let's not forget. But at that time when the prisoner was was out, people didn't really own televisions either. You know, they would rent them. Oh, we in uni we rented our from from radio rentals. Radio rentals. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who's the Rumbelows? Yes. It was, yes. it was one of the two. But it was one of those things you couldn't really afford to buy because they were quite, the expense were quite prohibitive. Oh, yeah. Could you get TVs, could you hire TVs that you could put money into? Yes. Could you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, saw, I, I saw that in a film once. I wasn't sure if it was real. Yeah. He's brought back to face number two, isn't he? Yeah. Um, and we have the shooting stick. Yes. Which, uh, it's quite nice, actually, that your original 
uh, I, I hadn't even thought about this, but I think very on, early on you mm. were talking about the shooting stick as being emblematic of the upper classes. And it actually contains <laughs> a proper sword. It makes yeah. it a proper... There, there you go. You, I, you want allegory? I can give you allegory. I think that's a bit of a riff on the Avengers, though. I don't know. Because he is a sadist. The idea that he's, he's, he could actually point... He, he, Prop-wise, he'd mm. need something to, uh, to intimidate number six with. And it's quite nice to have it within the shooting stick as well. Yeah. I don't know if it was standard issue for number twos. <laughs> oh, by the way... With optional, sword. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's because he points, he puts the, the sword tip, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. On his forehead. And that's quite a dark moment. Yeah, yeah. Your he, hero is kind of under the sword. Yes, yes. But then he takes the, um, he takes the call... He takes from uh, the phone he's borrowed from Colin Gordon. Yeah, the impractically the totally designed impractical. red telephone. <laughs> <laughs> That's the moment, isn't it? Uh, when he takes the call from number one mm. and gets that similar sort of, uh, he shows his kind of fear and his, uh, uh, his paranoia. Yeah. You can see it in Six's eyes. Ah, that's how I'm going to get him. This is Achilles' heel. He, he, hasn't, he hasn't made his plan yet. No. So like, he's probably thinking, I'm going to kill this guy or something. But now, this, this instant, he sees the weakness and says, like, ah. And he says, I'll break you, number six. Yes. And that's such a wonderful mm. delivery, isn't it? Yes. The contempt. The <laughs> yes. contempt. The contempt, but, yeah, the fact that he's not intimidated by him at all. Yes. And he's already formulating that plan. Yeah. And, and he, gets, he gets straight into it. It's off to the shop. Mm. Uh, currently under new management. Well, before we get there, we have our first leitmotif of the prelude to Farandol from Bizet's uh, La Lausienne. Mm. The dun, 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 Which is, comes twice in Bizet's piece. It comes as part of the prelude, like an overture, and it also comes later on in the Farandole. Mm. Uh, what I found interesting about the Farandole is that it's a chain dance. Do explain, Albine. So, like the conga, when people would <laughs> put their hands on each other's hips and walk around... Yes. Like they're doing the Christmas episode of Duty Free. But I won't go there. <laughs> a chain dance where people link arms or hold hands or they would go in and out of each other. So if you listen to the main piece of Farandol, yes. where it starts to pick up, and the band play this as well, chain dance is where they would go in and out of each other and dance around. So that's what the Farandol actually means. But the fact that it's a chain dance, it has that connotation of chain, a prisoner uh-huh. chain. So it might just be a completely off-topic, tenuous link. I like my tenuous links. But it's also the right piece of music, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it has that, that uh, La Lesienne part is the, uh, I don't know, there's a darkness to it as well, isn't there? There's mm-hmm. an ominous. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's almost it's like all... the opening of Mastermind. <laughs> it's all minor keys, isn't yeah. it? It's quite odd, isn't it, to have in this episode so many outside cultural references for uh, you know, the village is normally even the culture is kind of uh, self-contained, but now they've got the village, the village everything. They've got they've got their own. They've got their own record label, <laughs> yes. which is very really, literally in the, in the, a literary record label. But they've I don't know. One of my favourites though, and it's, it's just it's a prop on the on the magazine rack, mm. the Village Journal, which is not oh instead of the Tally Ho. Well, I think it's, it's a rival competing if, issue. If you look at where the Tally Ho's are on the rack and then look at the bottom, it says Village Now, which I'm guessing is the Village Journal. Oh, yeah. I can't think of any, any other words that it could be, really. 
there's a picture of a woman on there and it's like a TV Times style magazine. <laughs> but yeah, I'd love to know. Maybe it's the TV listings magazine for the village. For the village, yeah. There's <laughs> Al Mancini basically reading <laughs> Goethe. <laughs> reading Goethe. Then there'll be a bit of Speed Learn 8 yes. instead of the Open University. <laughs> that probably goes on through the night, doesn't it? Village TV. It's cooking with number two. Your weekly insight into the culinary affairs of the village administrator. At eight, it's Rover's half hour. But Rover will bounce around showing you his favourite moments around the village. The news at nine, read by Fenella Fielding. And then at 9.30, it's our late film. Not sure what it is, but it's something with Colin Gordon in. And that's all for tonight on Village TV. <laughs> anyway, yeah, sorry, Kai. I don't know what came over me there. Yeah, it's uh, quite all right. It's, uh, it was... That's how I imagine the village TV to be. I'd imagine so. They probably only broadcast for between seven and nine anyway. They have a task card. <laughs> and now the latest Norman Wisdom film. <laughs> the task card with Rover in the middle, like task card F. It's just <laughs> exactly. Rover, it's just Rover <laughs> smothering someone. <laughs> Oh, oh no, that would be dark, wouldn't it? It'd be Hilary Dwyer with a with a blackboard, yeah. and uh, Dutton as the clown. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just went off on a tangent there. I was thinking of Family Examiner and uh, TV Go Home. <laughs> but uh, slight correction. Go on. When we looked at Free for All, I made a, a, a comment that I thought number six's election photo was his danger man. Yeah, I, I thought so too. Probably, no, apparently it was a publicity still. It was one of his actor publicity stills. Oh, spotlight one. Possibly. I'm not entirely, not 100% sure, but it wasn't a danger man. So uh, that's, the, that's the key thing there. Uh, but interestingly enough, that leads into what I was going to say next, is that uh, the, the photo on the front of the tally-ho is Cargill's spotlight photo. Oh, is it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Saving money. Well, yeah. They, t- they took some nice photographs together. They really knew how to throw a shadow. But apparently they wanted to turn that photo into more of like a, a dictator photo, you know, up shot yeah, at a low yes. angle and, then, and use the lighting to make him like Mussolini's mm, photo yes. from World War Two to make him, you know, maybe into like that dictator mould. But maybe that was a little... I don't know. There's something quite nice about having a, the a benign, kindly mm. Uncle Joe sort of thing instead. We digress. So what were you saying about the shop? Oh, yeah, only that uh, the previous uh, management has been uh, taken to one side. <laughs> yes, for an altercation. <laughs> and booted out, and is now uh, Victor Wolf, mm. who knows his Bizet. He, he, he does know his Bizet, uh, particularly the Davier yes. recordings. Oh, you can't beat it. Now I want to touch Davier. No. But Davier, do you know what it means? No. They're forceps that are used in dentistry. Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> so... Why was that name? I mean, obviously there was no composer. There's no recorder. There's no musician, conductor, anybody called Davier, anything to do with Bizet. So this name has been dreamt up for the prisoner. Yeah. So I mean, uh, they're just going for some French-sounding name. It takes a Frenchman. Ah, yeah, that's right. But I don't know. This, well, knowing Roger Waters' uh, limitless uh, vocabulary, mm. he would have thought, ah, wonderful, I need some sort of torture implement uh, yeah. reference. Ooh, I know. Dentist Pulling forceps. teeth, yes. Yeah. Oh, dentist forceps, just to put those two words together. Yeah. Wince. I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think he's, he's definitely looked for something that's malicious or something that has that connotation with... Of pain. torture, almost, yeah. 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 Extracting teeth. 
Well, it go, I mean, it, it uh, goes with this number two's reputation as, as a sadist. sadist. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's his defining characteristic is sadism. Was it also interesting? There's only six copies in stock. Let's talk about the listening booths because that's something we don't see anymore. Anymore? Well, they'd gone by the time we were kids, really, hadn't they? Yeah. Well, I remember my mum telling me about this and thinking how ace. Mm. There's a Python, there's a track on a Python album mm. where he has to go into various booths to listen to a record, isn't it? Remember yeah. Eric? No, booth, try booth four. But mum's saying, oh, yeah, this is what happened. And then and we went to the 60s, sorry, the, the Beatles story in Liverpool. Yes. And, of course, they recreate one. And, they, and there was one there, and I thought, how ace! Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, I think you could use it as well. Yeah. I thought, well, this is brilliant. It was, uh, it's wonderful. And there's a lovely sort of little look where he's he's just checking whether to make sure that the guy's watching him. Yeah. Uh, and then there's the uh, cooker clocks. Yes, which will make a reappearance. Um, in the next in, in, episode. In, it's your funeral. Yeah. There's also another connotation with cuckoo, though, isn't there? Go on. Mental state. Oh, you're really reading so much into this. Am I? Yeah, I believe you are. <laughs> <laughs> Going cuckoo. Because yes. he does towards the end. And that's also when number six leaves the the cuckoo clock. I, yeah, I, yeah, as a sort of I didn't remember when he was actually uh, pushing down the um, the cuckoo making. Uh, I, I did think, oh yeah, it could have been anything. He could have left anything there, but he left a cuckoo clock. And and I think that's important because obviously they get their money's worth out of them with <laughs> it's your funeral. But uh, it's it's that you know when somebody says they're going cuckoo, mm. if if he sees that on his doorstep. Is that not the implication of the cuckoo clock? You're going mad. You're going cuckoo. He's gaslighting him, essentially, isn't he? Oh, yeah. Which is, oh, no. it's, it's, I, I briefly thought that, but for some reason I didn't write it down. I was too, I was too busy getting excited about the bomb disposal unit that shows up. <laughs> yes. Which is wonderful. I just kind of thought, you know, the, you mentioned the Hurt Locker. Yes. These guys are massive. Yeah. Sort of, and then they send over two guys with tin helmets yeah. and a bucket of sand. <laughs> yeah. That's the village. Yeah, that'll be the, that'll be the film, the late film on Saturday night, the Hurt Locker village version. Yes. <laughs> well, there's an interesting um, currency thing here. So if a if the tally ho is two units, I thought about this. Uh, a cuckoo clock was fifty, wasn't it? Uh, thirty-five. Thirty. Is that all? No, the, the oh, first 50... cuckoo clock that you see is thirty-five units. Oh yeah. But they they, be, they range between thirty-five and I think the shopkeeper says this one's fifty. Mm. So even if we went to pounds. Because I looked on a, at a certain online source to see how much <laughs> cooker clocks will, will cost, and you can get a decent cooker clock for about fifty quid now. Yeah, so, so that's about right. But then, does that mean the tally ho is about three fifty? That's a lot. No, no. If if one unit is a pound, yeah. How much is the tally ho again? Two units. Two. That's, that's loads. That's two quid. It's daily as well. It's only a sheet. I know. That's not even fold. But then a cooker clock is thirty-five units. Hmm. So even if you double it. I mean, I'd, it's it's definitely worth buying. Yeah. I'd get two. I think the the currency of the village is is very odd. Yeah. Maybe they put more of a higher. Maybe they don't want people to buy the tally ho. Maybe because they're never ever going to escape. Time has a different set, uh, value. Maybe. Or maybe they're just trying to put people off and save their credits by not buying the tally ho. <laughs> <laughs> Just talking about floods in Kidderminster. <laughs> <laughs> you do get a you do get a decent sort of chess game. But though. it's like that. That it, it's probably not a lot of news to put on the tally ho. You know that that famous story about the BBC where there was no news. <laughs> the day with no news. Yes. Yeah. What would you give for a day with no news today? No, but true story. Um, in 1930, the BBC's news announcer basically came on air and went, "There is no news." <laughs> 
at the quarter nine news bulletin, and then piano music was played for the rest of the fifteen minute segment, <laughs> which I think is fantastic. And then it went back to normal broadcasting at nine o'clock. Oh yes, yeah, there's no news today, but by six o'clock we have some news in. Hitler has invaded Poland. <laughs> Have you, have you got the news report ready for 8.45? Yes, I have. Ah, oh, bugger. <laughs> <laughs> Swing it. There's no news today. <laughs> it, uh, it'd be like Martin Lewis's kind of happy ending to the news, but just stretched yeah. over the entire bulletin. Yeah. Today, a squirrel leapt from one tree to another. Yeah. Over to you, Jim. But isn't that fascinating? Now, you you've go from 1930 to now, mm. which is nearly 100 years, Oh, God. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, it is. It's yeah, it nearly is. 100 years in that they didn't see anything worth... I mean, there wasn't... Obviously, there's going to be something happening around the world. Obviously, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have satellite communication. So news flowing was a lot slower than it is today. But clearly something had happened that day. There must have been. Anyway, moving on. So um, we have uh, number 14, the sidekick. Yeah, the psychic stroke henchman. Played by Basil Hoskins. Basil Hoskins, yes. I couldn't believe this. Yeah, I, I was couldn't, surprised. I was absolutely dumbstruck. Harry Andrews. Ha- the. The Harry Andrews. Harry Andrews from Ice Cold and Alex. Uh, who um, was Basil Hoskins' uh, lover and partner yeah. for, for many years. In fact, they were buried together, which is rather yeah, sweet. It's, it's quite touching. Uh, but all uh, you'd say Harry Andrews to me. What, what, what's the first thing that comes into your head? Ice Cold and Alex. My, mine is The Hill. And Superman. Yes, Jor-El. He's one of the faces, isn't he? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but no, I just think of the hill. Yeah, it's with Connery. Shouting. He's the major, yeah. isn't he? And he's just shouting at Sean Connery all the time. Can you imagine living with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basil! <laughs> <laughs> You're burning the toast to God! You just this, this massive head, didn't he? I thought, my God, I, that, what a, that absolutely blindsided me, that. But he's he's t- a fantastic actor, Harry Andrews. God. Mm. He wasn't in much, Basil Hoskins. I no. kind of expected to see this massive list of usual sort of ITC stuff because he, he's not a particularly familiar face. No. I remember him briefly from Ice Cold and Alex, but yeah. uh, he didn't do much, actually. I think he was he confined mainly to stage. Yes, yes, which, is as we've discovered, is, is pretty much par for the course oh, yeah, with a lot yeah, of yeah. these actors. But he never really... I don't think he obviously took to TV or film mm. much. Uh, I mean, but, his IMDb credits aren't particularly... No, he's got ten. yeah. That's about it. But yeah. uh, he's good in this. Yes, yes. And he's he is, of course, the first person to take on number six at Kosho. <laughs> I'd quite like to see... Remember Fantastic Mr Fox when they yes. had the explanation of Whackbat? <laughs> which is this interminable, <laughs> nonsensical game with these absurd rules. But it's only the same... It's like Harry Potter and... Uh... Quidditch is Quidditch. Quidditch is a dreadful. Sorry, Potterites, but yeah. if if all you got to do is catch the snitch, what if you catch it in the first ten seconds? Yeah. Game over. Quick game. Kosho would never pass health and safety today. That's a, t- a those ridiculous helmets. Yes, which um, are standard motorcycle helmets at the time. Well, they, they? that's not good. Well, if you, I mean, the pool is about the size of a of, of one of those paddling things you used to have to wade through uh, yes. before you went into the swimming pool. Look like Coca Cola. Okay. Coca-Cola, look like Lucasade and ours, it was horrible, uh, the amber colour. Where I grew up, there was the, the myth was it was Coca-Cola, and there was one lad in, in, when I was in Cubs, they, they trying to get him to drink it. Uh, I, he didn't, fortunately. <laughs> His death has been no. It's um, but yes, if you fell out, if you fell from the from the platform onto yeah. that. But you don't go all the way in. It's not, it's, not, it's not long enough to contain an entire body. Yeah. So you will either smash your ribcage open yeah, yeah. or break your neck. No, this is an appallingly designed game. Yes. 
I mean, I mean this if you, you know Wordle, hmm. this thing that's happened now, and yeah, everyone's yeah. suddenly doing it. But then you, you read people going, the the craftsmanship of this game, the way it's yeah. been designed, has been wonderful. And then you hear they tear about game designers and yeah. how incredibly intricate it is, and what what makes a great game and a bad. This is a dreadful game. Mm. This is and you're right, it's silly. Because the best games, as we know, are the simplest. It's it's the one thing it really stuck out. Even back then, it's like this this is a bad idea. And I remember mm. I remember thinking I'd go into a little bit of research about it years ago to work out whether this is a real game or not. Yeah. Do you reckon McGowan came up with this or like yes. Jack Champion? Maybe? Didn't he turn up though at the press conference? Yes, that's right. He was wearing the Kosho uh, gear, but they were filming Living in Harmony, strangely. So it was mm. a strange, odd choice. And wasn't the conference, doesn't it take place inside the truck that they use for when they escape in Fallout? It was a kind of odd sort of mix of, uh, and then of course he mm. didn't, uh, every question they asked him, he just answered a question back. Yeah. The most, uh, for a journalist, it would have been the most incredibly infuriating yeah. two hours of their lives. <laughs> they would, but um, yeah, no, it's just an odd, odd. It just it never landed with me. Yeah. There's something else that, 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 that when I, especially when I watched it again, I thought, what is the point of this? Was the oscilloscope? When he basically says, uh, he's, he's recorded number six's voice. Oh, yes. yes and he yes. says, uh, and I've got this device that will help prove that yeah. this is number six talking. And it goes on, I've, I've paused it on the word you. Now, if this graph, and he goes, hang on, we know it's, why are you wasting yeah, yeah. two minutes of time with this nonsense? It, clear, it sounds like number six. <laughs> yeah. There's a technology called Liebert, and it allows you to take the voice of somebody. So you could basically feed it in all your dialogue, all your uh, speaking from this podcast mm. into Liebert. And then the AI would be able to create your voice. Oh, God. Yeah. So It's like the deep fake stuff. It's an audio deep fake. Yeah. So you could basically recreate somebody's voice. They've used this in the um, Book of Boba Fett recently. I don't know if it was the library software. It might have been. A, I know Google have got one. But, yeah, so it allows you to basically resurrect the dead. And they did that with Peter Cushing, didn't they, in Rogue One? Yeah, yeah. But they had Guy Henry doing the voice. But with this technology, you could basically find every little bit of audio footage of Peter Cushing, feed it in there, and then it would read the script. And you can dictate the tempo, the intonation, the cadences. So when they, when they do the special edition of Rogue One, when they ruin that... They could do. Uh, they'll be putting... Pe- can you imagine somebody inventing, and same with the deep fake tough, mm. uh, stuff, can you imagine somebody inventing this technology and thinking, this won't be an incredibly dangerous step forward for humanity? I, there is nothing positive about no. this. This is no. unbelievably dangerous. Well, they have they've did some tests, didn't they, with um, Obama. They had an actor basically presenting a speech and doing an impersonation of Obama and then replaced his face mm. with a deep fake. And... You know, the problem today is people just, if, they, if, it, if it conforms with their belief, they won't even... No, I know. And, and I mean, possibly the most desperate threat to humanity at the moment is fake news, is mm. misinformation. And for somebody at this, exactly this stage mm. in, our, in the human story to invent this garbage yes. is, I mean, this is technology that should have been destroyed. But this technology, then you can edit you can subvert people's expectations of course, but you i mean this uh, wars could start over stuff like this it's it's unthinkable that this was allowed to have been created I, yeah. i'm so angry i'm so angry listeners <laughs> <laughs> listen to the rage in my voice um don quixote gets a does reference yes. doesn't he cervantes um story about the man 
fighting windmills mm. or... Tilting at windmills. Tilting at windmills. But yeah. he's basically threatening them, isn't he? He's basically pointing his sword and challenging the wind almost. Yeah. But that's quite nice because Cargill is Don Quixote, mm. which means that Basil Hoskins, number 14... Is Sancho Panza. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but again, this makes me think of uh, Python. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I follow this ratty from Toad of Toad Hall. There's something else that's quite interesting here. 113's grave. Go on. Well, 113 was, a, as, as Cargill's number two says, was a little old lady who died some months previously. Mm. But also 113, and here's my photographic associate, 113B, were the ah, journalists. the two journalists. From Free For All. Ah, well, um... It's just I, interesting I'm... that they would use the same number. Yeah. Why not just have a list to say, right, we've used 14, we've used 73, we've used... I'm going to stick my hand up now and suggest that that's simply bad planning. Could they, be. They, they, they probably, I'd imagine at some point, maybe after they'd filmed it, edited it, yeah. and it had gone out, somebody went, oh, It's not God, the first time, is it? it? It's, it's not it. the first time that, you know, like we saw in a, an arrival, people were using the same badges. Yes, yeah. You know, there's this kind of uh, not strict adherence to continuity, where the badges, where the numbers are concerned. Mm. Is that by design, or is that happening too regularly to be a mistake? Swanick returns. Indeed, Hooray. indeed. Back the proper, proper after yeah. these, after these interlopers, the proper supervisors. He's back. back. He means business, and then gets sacked. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not only that, but he's a DJ. Yeah, he's reading. <laughs> he's reading birthday requests. Which is apps. I was. It floored me. This. That's it. I've put on my notes. Does he double as a DJ? You know, and like then... with his supervisor duties. Maybe that's what he's been doing. He's been off on the village roadshow. <laughs> Been Paul Maddock on the beach, and uh... <laughs> he's pretty. He's pretty. He probably does weddings as well. Yeah. Here's a bit of BZ with Farrandot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Takes a Frenchman. Yeah. That's, That's a good band name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was just that was such an unexpected. I'd forgotten that. Yeah. I mean, the other thing, of course, is the the, the post box, mm. which is, it's, it's the only time you see a post box. Can you imagine being that lazy? Yeah. That you would, um, oh, it's right up there. It's two metres away, or no, I'll just well, That's send what it. we talked about last week with the phone. Yeah. It's like, why would you have a postbox when you can just put it through their letterbox? Again, it's, I, I absolutely positive it's intentional to show that the, as technology improves, that we're not able to deal with it. We're not respecting the technology and we're just letting it run our lives, and we're just becoming lazier and lazier. There's a post box. I'm going to put it in. Someone will collect it and distribute it when we could have just moved a few more steps and posted it <laughs> through the letterbox. And to send I a request. I rest my case, Your Honour. Uh, agreed. Case dismissed. <laughs> Kenny, Griffith and there with his gavel. <laughs> but the, the, the idea that the, that the village has its own radio station is fantastic. Yes. And Swanick is the... I just liken it. I just think it's more like, like hospital radio. Yeah, I can imagine some sort of like Simon Bates hour tune thing. But it is, isn't it? It's piped in. It is. And they can't turn it off like people who are in hospital beds. They have to listen to it. <laughs> this is a song request for number 69. It was meant to be the happiest day of our lives. I was so looking forward to becoming Mrs. 113. However, my fiancé's stag night overran at the cat and mouse. And in a drunken state, he returned home just as Guy Dolman told everybody to stop. <laughs> Not knowing quite who or where he was, he decided to make a run for it and was smothered to death by, <laughs> by Rover. 
This song is dedicated to the people who've organized the wedding, the caterers who've been very kindly transferred the wedding breakfast into a funeral tea. This is Camouflage by Stan Ridgway. So, Swanick gets fired. Yeah. And he's replaced by Derek Aylward. And did you know he had... Derek Aylward carved a career out of making British erotic films. (laughs) No. So he was an actor who was primarily known for the British sex film industry. I'm not talking pornography. I'm talking, you know, those... Soho. Yeah, kind of. But the ones that you would have some name actors in. Maybe some carry-on actors would appear in them. Oh, sort of lewd bawdy comedies as opposed to, like, peep show stuff. Just, you know, those X-rated adult, you know... You'd see breasts and naughty nurses and, <laughs> and things like that. And Michael and Oliver Tobias, probably. Yeah. And just pay Charles Hawtrey to walk across and go, Hello. <laughs> 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 That's, or Sid James. <laughs> Sid. Oh, brilliant. Our pup's uh, Victor Madden, who's, well, who's probably one of the most famous faces from that whole period, from the 1950s. He was in... Um, I think one of his. I think of him from "I'm All Right, Jack." Mm. He's a turn out, were you? That was Sellers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's the sort of uh, the fir- the first guy Ian Carmichael sort of uh, bumps into. He sort of takes him around the uh, the, the site. Yeah. But he's got that sort of proper. I think he's the one at the beginning, sort of giving it the V's on top of the lamppost. <laughs> but he's he's one. He's a bit like um, John Gregson. He's in if. If you watch a film in the afternoon on Talking Pictures TV, mm. there's a basically a one in two chance that Victor Madden will yeah, be in yeah, it. Yeah, because he had quite a, quite a big film career, didn't he? Prior he was a huge, to... yeah, massive. He's a bit like Norman Rossington, that sort of mm. same sort of thing. But he was always in so many, so many films. I think his career might possibly have been a little bit on the wane mm. at this point. Uh, so it's kind of a small part. I know he was, he was only in sort of. I don't think he ever played a lead. Uh, but he was such a recognisable character for him to sort of show up. But yeah. apparently, apparently he, he really wanted to. He desperately wanted to work with McGowan. I've put, this episode has a lot of slapping and a lot of firing. Because he slaps number He does, six, yes. Yeah, he? Yeah. And he slaps number 14 as well. Yeah. You know, and he fires Swanick. And there's a few, and there's a few other people he fires as well. Yeah. Because he thinks they're in the, he fires the doctor, doesn't he? Because he thinks he's in league yeah, yeah. number six. This now leads towards the end of the episode, doesn't it? The, after the bomb disposal team. Yeah. He's, he's broken. Going back to Farindol, and we talk about chain. Yeah. There's also a chain of command as well. And uh, that's in the dialogue, isn't it? It's a weak link in the chain of command. Yeah. Where Farindol then, meaning chain, chain dance, adds another layer of meaning to that song as well. Or to yeah. A piece of music. Well, the chain um, gets ruptured every single link in this episode because yeah. everyone seems to get fired. Yeah. Who's the two? Patrick Cargill, returning or proceeding, depending on which uh, way you got shot. Yeah. I mean, I, I like the, the idea that he's the same, that he is actually Thorpe. Mm. I, li- I like the fact that it would add to number six's utter contempt of him, that he's mm-hmm. actually responsible for bringing him back. Yes. Yeah. The turncoat. Yeah, I don't think it is. I think they're separate characters. Personally, I think they're separate characters. I, I, I kind of, I know they're not. I know, I know, <laughs> I know well, they're we not. Don't, but we don't but, know, do we? Well... <laughs> It, it works either way. Yes, it does. Um, and has merit on either on whichever side of the fence you sit on. Yeah. It has merit either way. But, I mean, we, we know for a fact that ICC just reused actors because it was handy. And, uh, and they went back a bit, Cargill and McGowan. Mm. I, th- I didn't know this, but um, Cargill directed quite a few plays in the West End. They would have, had, they would have been good, good friends, I think. I would think so. He uh, initially had a military career. Uh, oh, yeah. He was originally stationed in India. 
during uh, World War Two. He was good friends with Patrick McNee. Oh, is he? Which I think is lovely. Oh, well, there's a wonderful episode of The Avengers. Oh, I can't remember what it's called. Um, but basically, he's in charge of a, a wedding planner. I mean, he, he, he was so good at playing those kind of officious Englishmen in the suits, yes. a morning suit in this case. But there's this fantastic scene where he and Patrick McNee are testing wedding cakes. And the Cargill is, 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 is like Magoo. He's a brilliant eater. Mm. The way he sort of takes these tiny little elements of cake and I'm, mm, mm, what do you think? Mm, far too sweet. <laughs> and, uh, and there's a lovely rapport with he and McNee. That makes, I didn't know they were friends. That makes so yeah. much sense. It's a lovely scene if you can get... get if you, if you, it's a, one of the old black and whites. Yeah, he wrote the stage play, uh, Ring for Catty. With, oh, that rings a bell. Yeah, with that, Jack uh, Beale. And that starred McGowan and Joan Drummond, who was McGowan's yeah, wife. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was in two Carry On films. Uh, as we've discussed so many times, he was in the Beatles film, Help. Yes. <laughs> uh, and The Blood Donor, which I think you mentioned as well. He also played in a lot of farces. I think farces were basically his bread and butter. He was also friends with Ray Cooney, who you wrote yeah. for your wife. But, um, yeah, he, he, he was very much a farce actor. But you can imagine him, can't you? You can imagine, you know, with the... We may have to explain what a farce is for some listeners because it's a style of of play that relies on a conceit of somebody being caught in the act and running through a door in order to hide something and then the wife comes in at the right time and then he comes back in with his trousers down and she's turned her back (laughs) and he sees and goes out. And it's all very funny, but the timing in a farce is spot on. Yeah, it has to be absolutely... And it's, it's it's a real skill. It's a it's a French tradition, isn't it? I think Fast. so. It involves so much physical comedy mm. that it translates really well across. Even if you're not quite sure what the plot is, yeah. But though you're right, it usually is there's a, a man behind the curtains. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you can imagine him doing that, can't you? You can imagine him being the pompous or the vicar, yes. or the or the doctor, or he. he <clears throat> I'd imagine he'd be excessively good at dropping the half moon glasses down his nose and peering down at you yeah. to make a judgment look. Yes. <laughs> and of course, his sitcom career as well, which is bigger than... I do, they, they're rarely shown again. What was the big Father, one? Father Dear Father. Father Dear Father, yeah. I mean, that would have made him a big mainstream. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, I don't, I don't really remember it. But then when you look at that, it, it was like, oh, my, this was a colossal hit yeah. at the time. Apparently, in showbiz circles, it was no secret that uh, Cargill was gay. And there's a funny story that when he was out lunching with Ray Cooney, Cargill uh, made comments about this very handsome waiter who was serving them and uh, mistakenly removed Cargill's soup spoon. To which Cargill replied, Oh, look, Ray, the dish has run away with the spoon. (laughs) (laughs) Which is fantastic. Oh, brilliant. But talking about Father Dear Father, quite a few prisoner actors turned up in that. Oh, yeah. People like Charles Lloyd Pack, who appears in the next episode. Yeah. Uh, Norman Mitchell, who was an uh, electrician. Yeah. And, and various <laughs> others. Who so, <laughs> was in everything. He was in everything, Norman Mitchell, wasn't he? I love this next one. He, um, he was in a film in 1977 with Danny LaRue. Oh, yeah. And he played a character called Gribble, and it was called Come Spy With Me. <laughs> His last TV performance, he played Neville Chamberlain. Really? In the... <laughs> A controversial sitcom, Heil Honey, I'm Home. I, I was in some sort of, you know, it's Channel 5. When TV goes horribly wrong, yeah. and I saw a clip, oh, he played, oh, Never God, Chamberlain. 
Was what? that an American thing? No, it was British, but British. it was done in an American style. Yeah, it was like a Jack Benny type thing. Well, yeah, the conceit was that Hitler and Eva Braun had moved into an, an apartment uh, and a Jewish couple lived next door. So it was a little bit like Love Thy Neighbour, oh, but with Hitler and God. the Jewish family. And it was supposed to be... It wasn't supposed to be as so blunt on the nose, ridiculous. There was actually supposed to be more of a, a, a level of subtext and, you know, intelligence behind it. Unfortunately, the way it was produced was just uh, like a 50s American sitcom. Oh, God. Like one of, you know, like a WandaVision. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one of those six, 50s, 60s episodes. No, my toes are curling. Yeah. What a show to go out on. I think, I think this is one of the... A really great episode, actually, mainly because of of the type of number two that Cargill's playing. He's he's basically mid management. Mm. He's got all the, that kind of the bullying that you get, and the the classic kind of really awful. Everyone in any who's ever worked in an office has probably got somebody just like that. Yeah, somebody who's kind of uh, in the middle somewhere where they've got a certain amount of power over some of the workforce. Yeah, but at the same time they have to look up and and suck up. And and are worried about getting fired. Yeah. So the, the, they tend if you get the wrong person in that kind of job, it can be absolutely nightmarish. Mm. And I bet you anyone who's ever worked in more than two places will go, Oh, do you know who that reminds me of? Yeah. Do you remember do you remember Steve <laughs> at that place? That guy he kept he kept oh, he kept insisting we call him Stephen. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember? He, and he was such a. Bu- it's the bullying. Yeah, they, they, they're always bullies. Mm. And I think in in any place, in any workforce, in schools, the the bully. Uh, none of the other number twos are quite like this. But that that bullying is something that people just viscerally hate. Yeah, with good reason. And it's it's a bit like it's a bit like the Peter Principle thing, isn't it? Mm. Where people basically are just promoted occasionally, sort of way beyond their abilities. But then the, I've, I've read one interview where, where it's the people are promoted beyond the, their capabilities, and then because they can't really be fired, even though they're incompetent, mm. they have to be sort of uh, promoted again, but sideways. Mm. Like, uh, good news, you're, you're getting an extra ten grand a year because you're going to be manning a uh, radar station in Peru. <laughs> What? But we run a, a stationary company in uh, in Totnes. Yeah, it's great. It's great. That's pretty. It's more money. Yeah. I can't. But how do you get this promotion, man? It's great. And they're actually just desperately trying to get rid of this yeah. imbecile. But I think that's what Cargill's number two represents. And I think, yeah. and I think that's one of the reasons why it's such a an enjoyable episode. Mm. Seeing somebody like that get his comeuppance. And I think what number six spots in that moment after the the phone call with number one mm. is the fact that he realizes at his centre. That he isn't very good. Mm. That he—that's the thing he's hiding from anyone. He kind of knows he's actually useless. Yeah. Amateurs. I am the—you know—the the beginning. Many have tried. Amateurs. Yeah. I'm a genius. Actually, I, privately, I know, and you can see from a flash in his eyes, or just a look of fear, that he knows he's actually pretty useless. He's a narcissist, though, as well. Yeah, I would say. Do you think? Yeah, because he blames other people for his own. But that, that's again, that's another quality of bad middle management. Yeah. Or bad managers, that there's no accountability. No, it's always somebody else's fault. And they will get fired, which he does. He fires everyone. Scores? Five. Okay. I think this does its job uh, with ruthless efficiency. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a great idea. And it's just wonderful. I mean, by, by the very nature of the fact that this is a show in which the main character can't escape, 
technically he basically has to lose at the end of every episode and he's either he's either crushed mm. or he just or he's frustrated but in this episode he wins it's a straight win mm. he didn't even try and escape because the only thing that he wants to do in this episode is destroy this man and he does so i think in the, it's in unique to the entire series this is a 100% win for number 6 mm. And it's it's great, and, and it's it's empowering to to, to watch because you're completely on his side. Yeah. The performances are universally great throughout the whole episode. Uh, great direction. It's a, it's a it's a it's a brilliantly effective episode. I th- I agree. I'd, I'd probably go with the five as well. It's it's one of my favourite episodes because it's so clever. Mm. Because of the writing, the the idea itself. I mean, you know, you watch still watch things like Department S or like mm. I said, Jason King doesn't make sense a lot of the time. Whereas this has a very well constructed narrative. You know, everything makes sense within the context of this episode. Mm. Um, number six has a purpose, and he stops at nothing until he's succeeded yeah. in that purpose. He's, he's relentless, and he's, he's and he's ingenious. He doesn't need guns. He doesn't need fist fights. I know there is a fist fight, but he doesn't need it yeah. in order to be the victor. I love the way he talks to uh, to Basil Hoskins. You know, he mm. goes just. <laughs> Just talk to her in the cafe. So uh, I got up. (laughs) (laughs) Why are you telling me this? (laughs) Oh, yes. But he's brilliant in this episode, Magoon. It's almost like a a Doctor Who episode in that, as you know, Doctor Who doesn't carry a gun, doesn't uh, condone any kind of violence. And it's almost like this, in this episode, is that he's using his brain, he's using his, his intelligence and cunning to create a situation that he can get himself out of or or, or manipulate mm. almost like the chess game but now he knows the rules well actually the, what are we uh, episode 10 it's it, you're exactly right by this point he kind of he's been a bit of an ingenue mm. in the past and he's been naive and he doesn't quite know what's going on you could see by this point yeah he, he, I, I know exactly how to play and it sort of furthers his status as a character who is eventually working out how to get out of here. Yeah. Even though he's not doing anything in this in this, in this episode, mm. he's he's a smarter, better informed character. Yeah. And he can see, and it's just this was a good time in the in the running order for him to have a, a big win. Well, that brings us to the end of series one of uh, Free for All, or should I say, season one uh, for our American listeners. And it's lovely to speak to you, by the way. But we're going to take a little bit of a break uh, just to catch our breath and get some more research in, because as you can appreciate, it takes a lot to to produce these episodes. Uh, and we want to make sure that we've got the best content and, and the right content available for you. But we will be back later in the year, uh, not too long with the uh, next episode, the first episode of season two. It's your funeral, in which we will be interviewing the magnificent Darren Nesbitt. Um, I'm not going to pull the wool over your ears. Uh, we have already interviewed him. Uh, and I can attest that uh, you will not want to miss this. He was incredibly good company. Uh, so uh, that's coming up next. We'll also be putting the full interview as a video on our Facebook page. Indeed. So if you're following us on that, you'll be able to uh, get informed about when the, the next episode is going to arrive. So stay tuned. Free For All podcast was presented by Kai Ross and Chris Bainbridge. The theme tune was by Gordon Milton, and special thanks to Jemima Duncar for the artwork. Please see you. You can find us on Twitter at Free For All Pod or on Facebook at Podcast Free For All. 
And not to be one of those begging, insistent types, but uh, like, subscribe to your heart's content. Uh, It all helps spread the word. You are our advertising budget. So thank you very much. (laughs)